0: this is mishmash a weekly conversation where we try to unjumble an important and sometimes under the radar statewide story that affects you i'm Shayna roth and this week i'm joined by possibly one of the most dogged reporters i know craig mauger of the detroit news craig welcome back to mishmash
1: hey thanks for having me thanks for the compliment too
0: Former Speaker of the House Lee Chatfield has been embroiled in political scandal for months now. The accusations range from embezzlement and bribery to misconduct in office and sexual assault. Craig, you have been following this story from the start. Where does this investigation into Chatfield currently stand?
1: Well, we know that individuals working for the Attorney General's office here in Michigan are examining a number of high-ranking individuals in and around state governments, According to a statement that an assistant attorney general made in court in November, this person said that the investigation involves state officials, past state officials, lobbyists, and governmental appointees at high levels. And just from that statement alone, we know that this investigation has the potential to completely reshape how Lansing works.
0: And we know that there are those high-ranking officials, appointees, lobbyists, that are being looked at in this case. We only know that because an attorney told an Ingham County judge about that while they were asking for records in this case to be kept under seal, so unavailable to the public. What was their reasoning for this? Why do they want to keep this quiet?
1: Well, this is a very long story, but uh, in October, my colleague Beth LeBlanc at the Detroit News was able to obtain two search warrant affidavits. These are documents that investigators have to file with a judge in order to argue for search warrants, to go out and get someone's phone records, to go out and get someone's stuff from their house that they're looking at. Uh, we got our hands on those. We reported them. And they were those documents were incredibly striking. They showed that the attorney general's office was examining allegations that Lee Chatfield was engaged in a, quote, criminal enterprise. They mentioned a couple of well-known individuals in the Lansing community, lobbyists, one from one of the largest lobbying firms, Governmental Consultant Services Incorporated, and another lobbyist who works for an array of you know key clients. We also know now because the Detroit Free Press and Bridge have tried to appeal to judges in Ingham County to make other search warrant affidavits in this case available and to make the ones that we got our hands on available to a broader group of media outlets, We know that there are four other search warrant affidavits that could have more details. So there's this kind of uh, quiet court fight going on over whether more affidavits should be released or not. The attorney general's office is arguing that these are statements that are in these affidavits that are not necessarily accusations of a crime. They're just facts that they determined in the investigation. Maybe they haven't vetted all of them fully. And throwing this all out there could create confusion. It could create embarrassment. And they believe that they have the right to suppress these documents until the investigation is complete. And then you have the free press in the Bridge, Michigan, who are arguing that under state law, that you have 56 days to keep a search warrant affidavit secret. If you don't file with the judge, to suppress them further than that they automatically become public after after that date there's a district court judge that agrees with bridge and uh, free press and there's a circuit court judge who's trying to determine whether the AG or that district court judge is right it seems
0: like one of the main reasons for all of this for this request by the attorney general's office is to avoid embarrassment which feels unusual. I don't know that I've ever heard of the AG's office trying to protect the reputations of people they're investigating or people on the periphery of an investigation. So what do you make of all this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the embarrassment argument was one argument that the AG's office made. They said there's the potential in these documents to embarrass people who maybe didn't necessarily do anything significantly wrong. They've also said in this document that it's unprecedented to have media outlets intervene in an ongoing criminal investigation to try to free up records. So there's kind of two sides to this. Bridge and the Free Press have argued that there is this embarrassment out claim that the AG's office is making and that, they, that there's no reason in the law for that to be some type of argument for keeping documents secret. But then you also know that potentially handing out these records could harm a criminal, ongoing criminal investigation. They haven't exactly laid out how it would harm their criminal investigation, but, but that's where the two sides stand. And there's this third factor. Did the AG's office comply with the law to keep the records secret? And, you know, that should be front and center in all of this. And Free Press and Bridge say no, they didn't.
0: The Detroit News, as you mentioned previously, managed to obtain a copy of these documents sort of on accident. Can you give us sort of the behind the scenes story of what happened there?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, we, we uh, uh, my colleague, Beth LeBlanc, who is an excellent reporter, very resourceful, we've been trying to find out everything we can about this investigation because we know that it involves high-ranking people, and it, it gets to the heart of how state laws are made in Michigan, and it's crucial for our readers to know that. We've been going all over the state, literally all over the state, to try to get access to affidavits in this case, and we've come very close in some places to getting them only to be denied at the last second. In this Ingham County situation, Beth went to the uh, district court and said, you know, I'd like to obtain these search warrant affidavits under the law. If they are not suppressed further than the 56 days, they become public. Uh, The people in the district court system looked at the documents, saw that they were not suppressed beyond the 56 days through the process laid out in state law, and made them available to us. As we were working on our story to reveal what was in these documents, which we believe was crucial for our readers to know and the people of Michigan to know, um, someone from a judge from the district court reached out to us and told us that these documents should not have been released and kind of urged us not to write about them because she said that these should not have been in your hands, you should not have got them. And we looked at the law and our leadership determined you know, we sh- we believe we should have gotten these documents and we already had them and we were already asking people about them uh, by the time the judge had reached out to us. So we published story- a story on them in October. and 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 that's kind of what happened when other media outlets went to try to get the same documents that we got. The district court wouldn't give them to them. And I can't answer for why the district court did that.
0: We know that these records could pertain to lobbyists, for one thing, which is a role that has kind of a mixed reputation. What do you think this case could mean for how we view lobbyists? I know we don't know a lot of the particulars, but it feels like this is something that could have a shift for for this, this profession.
1: It could reveal an incredible amount of information about how lobbyists in Lansing are interacting with lawmakers and the most important lawmakers. Uh, In in recent weeks, we published an investigation that we worked on for a month about Lee Chatfield's relationship with GCSI, this lobbying firm that might be one of the biggest in the state. And just from our work, talking to sources, we talked to about 40 sources for the story. We found out that Lee Chatfield was renting an apartment from a GCSI client for the entirety of his time in Lansing. He never revealed this. He was voting on bills related to this client. It was a client that represented auto dealers and advocated on the behalf of all the car dealerships in the state. Um, He was deciding whether their bills would go forward or not while renting an apartment from them. We don't know how much he paid for the apartment. Uh, We have been told by the leader of the Auto Dealers Association that he would sometimes fund his rent by using his nonprofit account, which is supposed to be focused on social welfare. But this is the kind of information that could be in these documents. There could be more of these situations. We don't know. We don't, we don't know what's in them. Uh, we don't know what type of interactions that he was having with some of the closest lobbyists to him. And one of the affidavits that we are already obtained, there, the attorney general's office is alleging that there was some type of arrangement between a GCSI lobbyist, Gary Owen, and Lee Chatfield's brother, Aaron Chatfield, to obtain Adderall. Uh, so there's obviously a tight connection. Between these lobbyists and the Speaker of the House in 2019 and 2020, what else does the Attorney General's office know? We don't know at this point.
0: Of course, all of this has once again drummed up the call for more transparency and ethics reform in Lansing, especially considering a lot of this case has to do with spending campaign funds. Craig, you were the campaign finance watchdog for many years. Where does the state currently stand with ethics and transparency? And do you see our laws changing
1: anytime soon? I mean, Michigan has been rated 50th out of the 50 states for its transparency and ethics laws. I mean, that's just a a fact. The Center for Public Integrity issued a rating a few years ago where they looked at all these aspects of the law. And that was their finding. We're 50th out of uh, 50. And two of the main reasons are we are one of two states without an open records law that impacts the governor and individual lawmakers and we're one of two states without any type of financial personal financial disclosure for state office holders that aspect's going to change because there was just a ballot proposal to impose financial disclosure on these office holders so we know that one's going to change uh, governor whitmer told reporters this week that she is supportive of opening the governor's office and state lawmakers' offices to a freedom of information policy. She also said that she wants to close loopholes in the lobbying law that may have attributed to what Lee Chatfield was doing while he was in office. There's going to be a new Democratic majority in the state House and Senate. Democrats in the legislature, as you know, have been Uh, calling for these ethics reforms for many years, if they get into power and all of a sudden drop those calls, which is very possible. Uh, We've seen this before. People change their positions once they get power. If they all of a sudden drop those calls, that will be fascinating to watch. It'll be something all of us will be documenting. It seems more likely that they'll try to do something um, and we'll see what it is.
0: What is next for the Lee Chatfield case? What are we waiting for? What are we thinking might be the next steps?
1: Well, I mean, the overarching thing we're waiting for is who is the attorney general's office going to charge and what are they going to charge those individuals with? We've been waiting on that for a year. It might not be that close. I mean, we don't know. You know, we expect it to take a while. Every indication that we've gotten is that this is a huge investigation. It's wide ranging. They're trying to get bank records, which can take a while. They're going through all of these financial documents from all of these different fundraising accounts that Lee Chatfield had. This could take a long time. Uh, You know, what else will happen? Lots of reporters are digging in to find out everything we can about what happened here, because like I said, we all feel like it's important. And I'm going to guess that there are going to be more and more revelations as the weeks go by.
0: Before we head out, uh, I want to move on to another story that you've been following. You had a piece in the Detroit News called Legislature's $1 billion spending spree obscured by backers, aided donors. Walk us through what the legislature spent a billion dollars on and what is concerning
1: there. Well, our state government's coffers are flush with all types of revenue right now. COVID-19 relief money. Uh, tax dollars that came in above what the prognosticators were expecting because of the COVID-19 pandemic and changing behaviors and how we all buy products. So they're figuring out how to spend this money. In the early morning hours, literally, I think around 2 a.m. on July 1st, they approved the new budget for this current fiscal year that we're now in. And in that budget was a billion dollars in spending on so-called enhancement grants, special projects that various lawmakers put forward. And we've been investigating this list of projects now for a few months, and we found that it's incredibly difficult to determine which lawmakers advocated for which project, why some of these projects ended up in the budget. And we found many situations where lawmakers whose districts won projects that those lawmakers didn't even know that the projects were in the budget until We reporters told them that they were in the budget or someone in their district said, hey, look at this project. They got funded. So there's all kinds of mystery around how these projects were negotiated and who put them in the budget. And we're finding connections between political donors and these uh, uh, individuals uh, who back the projects as we get more information. It is just an incredible situation.
0: How does something like this happen? Is it is it confusing by design? Is it a bill that was sort of like throwing everything in the kitchen sink in there in order to sort of muddle where things are going and where things are coming from? I guess, how does something like this happen? How do you get a bill that's so not clear?
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, it depends who you ask, right? I mean, the supporters of the budget bill will say that, you know, we wanted to get widespread support for this proposal. So it took handing out some special projects to people to get them to vote for it. That's not necessarily backed up by the facts of the situation, because these budget bills passed overwhelmingly in the House, the main budget bill passed 97 to nine. So it's kind of like you really needed to hand out more projects to get to 97 instead of 56. Uh, For opponents of this, they say that there was an incredible, a major effort By lobbying firms and interest groups to get a piece of this money. And the leadership of the legislature, a small group of people negotiated this behind closed doors. And this is what we ended up with. And when they were presented with the budget, a lot of them didn't know what was in it. And basically, they were told, take it all or leave it all. And and, uh, you either vote yes or you vote no.
0: Going back to those lobbyists again, I see a a trend in this episode.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a a key part of the story of how Lansing works. And and they don't love when we're looking at them and turning the microscope on them. But to to ignore the influence of these individuals and what they're there to do would be to ignore a major part of how our government functions.
0: Craig Mauger is with the Detroit News. Craig, thank you so much for joining me here today on Mishmash. It's always a pleasure to have you here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks again to Craig Mauger from the Detroit News. You can find more of Craig's reporting at DetroitNews.com. Mishmash is produced by WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This episode was produced by myself, Shayna Roth, and Hearns Laguerre Jr., for whom I owe so much gratitude. Our news director is the intrepid Jerome Vaughn, and our podcast manager is the tireless David Lyons. Our digital team is Dave Kim and Sophia Joswiak, and our podcast interns are Ashley Harris, Patrick Burness, and Jack Philbrant. As always, you can support the show by leaving us a review, or if you really, really like Mishmash, you can support us through WDET. Just go to WDET.org give without your donations. None of this is possible. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week.